Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which entertainer Jeremy Hardy traipses purposefully through the clinging mire of modern-day dilemmas. This week, How to Be a Father, Part 2. Good evening. This program is the second part of the lecture I began last week, How to Be a Father. In the first part, we looked at the history, sociology, double French, and PE of fatherhood. <laughs> this week, it's the practicalities of being a dad. I'm joined as ever by Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. Hello. Hello. Now, Debbie, tonight's lecture is aimed primarily at men. Now, there's an obvious biological difference between us because I'm a man and you're a woman. And I've told you before, Jeremy, the answer's no. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, turning to you, Gordon... Uh, I tend to agree with Debbie. Oh, <laughs> right. Well, so, tonight's lecture, How to Be a Father, Part 2. First of all, let me address myself to expectant fathers who may be finding the pregnancy a difficult time. Up until now, becoming parents has been a joint effort, and now it can seem like your job is over. All eyes are on the mother-to-be, and your role in things is forgotten. No one is taking account of your apprehension and dramatic mood swings. But all these emotions are completely natural if you are a bleating milksop. <laughs> Don't feel that there's nothing for you to do during the pregnancy. Go out and get pissed a lot. It's your last chance for a good while. You might think that in order to help your partner to abstain from alcohol during her pregnancy, you should do the same. But making yourself miserable isn't going to help her. <laughs> On the contrary, developing a large, rotund abdomen and throwing up every morning will enable you to share in some of the feelings of being pregnant. <laughs> Childbirth is a lot to take on board. There may be financial worries, and where you're living may not be a great place to have a child. You may also be having misgivings about what fatherhood will really be like. It's very important not to share any of these feelings with your partner. She's got enough to worry about without you telling her you've been made redundant and there's a history of mental illness in your family. <laughs> Just tell her nothing's wrong and drink more. If you've taken to stealing, invent an aunt who's left you some money or a lot of car stereos. <laughs> Feelings of jealousy are very common. Let's listen to this new dad. Teresa seemed so self-possessed, and although I knew I was being irrational, I became aware of possessive feelings I didn't know I was capable of. It was as if the inside of her had been mine in some way, and now there was someone else there. I asked the antenatal counsellor where all these emotions were coming from, <laughs> and she told me that Teresa was having an affair with one of the other dads. <laughs> One thing which faces all prospective fathers is vastly increased expenditure. And there is such a bewildering array of goods on the market that you can be quite perplexed about what to buy for a new baby. In general, it's best to choose small things. Babies are not very big and tend to be rather dwarfed by a double bed or size 13 Dr. Martins. You can waste an awful lot of time and money if you're not absolutely clear what you will actually need. Here is a checklist which I hope is a useful guide. One... Clothes. Two. Bottles. Three. Nappies and that. Four. Other stuff. You'll also need to go to classes and keep lots of towels boiling. The other thing you can usefully do is to choose a name. Jeremy is probably the best name for a boy. <laughs> Jeremella for a girl. The origin is biblical, deriving from the prophet Jeremiah. Biblical names are always favourites, although Herod, Judas and Sodom are to be avoided. <laughs> Also try to avoid a name which has been made temporarily fashionable by a film or TV series. If you've ever met a man called Spartacus, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> Bear in mind that the child will have to live with the name. 
There is also a vogue for inventing names for children. Celebrities in particular feel entitled to saddle their children with ridiculous names. Now, Gordon, you're a down-to-earth sort of bloke. What are your kids called? Well, the oldest, uh, she's called Sydney Toffee Banana Poopy Mephistopheles. <laughs> and what about the others? Oh, the same. We're not very original, I'm afraid. <laughs> Good, robust Celtic names, anyway. Ex-hippies call their children some very strange things, partly so that their kids get picked on at school, which provides an ideal excuse for moving them to private schools where all the kids have stupid names. <laughs> Many names have class connotations, and I have to admit that is a drawback with Jeremy. Jeremy's are not train drivers, farmhands or boxers. They are suave TV anchormen, Beatrix Potter frogs and inept tennis players. <laughs> but it may be that you want your child to get picked on. In this case, the best name for a boy is, as Johnny Cash tells us, Sue. <laughs> Sue is also a good name for a girl, although it doesn't produce the same effect since technically it is a girl's name. So, if you want to fight to start every time your daughter is asked her name, it's best to call her, what's it to you, Pratface. <laughs> this will certainly make for some lively beginnings at new schools and animated job interviews later on. As well as choosing a name, you may also want to choose a sex for your child. Clinics offering gender selection now have a success rate of up to 50%. <laughs> the male and female gametes are separated thus. Semen is put into a tube of water. The male sperms separate from the females by swimming faster, because the females are all doing breaststrokes so as not to get their faces in the water. <laughs> But trying to predetermine the sex of an infant is controversial. You should remember that babies are born sightless and covered in fur, and do not develop a gender until they're seven or eight years old. <laughs> it is vital that you let the child determine her own sex at her own pace. Conditioning is very influential, so clothes will affect the outcome. In the past, parents disappointed by the sex of their offspring had sometimes dressed children in the clothes of the sex they wanted. I was the fifth child, and what my parents really wanted was a holiday, so they dressed me as a caravan till I was 11. <laughs> In addition to naming and dressing children, it's also a good idea to feed them. During pregnancy, a woman's body changes. You will also notice that she has purchased a breast pump. This is because she is pumping up her breasts so they're big enough to fit the milk in. <laughs> Where a mother takes sole responsibility for feeding, the father may feel excluded and alienated, but it's well worth it when you consider how much more sleep you'll get than her. <laughs> Remember that the sleep you lose when your baby is young can never be regained, and even later on, what sleep you get will be when you're driving or operating heavy machinery. <laughs> if you prefer the baby to have formula milk, this can be expressed into the breasts using the pump. It's important that men do not feel pressurised into breastfeeding. It may just not be for you. Many women also have difficulty with breastfeeding, and partners can encourage them like this. Don't you want him to have any immunities, then? Oh. You're not a proper woman. Oh. My mother breastfed me till I was ten. Breastfeeding advisors agree that if a woman does decide to bottle feed, she should be made to feel guilty and a failure. Many books have been written to help you do this. Stella Danziger is Professor of Suckling at Loughborough University. In her book, Woman as Wet Nurse, The Case for Slavery, she writes... The single most rewarding thing in a woman's life is the lovely, hot, prickly spurting of her own milk through chapped and bleeding nipples while a child bites on them. Anyway, I managed it, so I don't see why anyone else shouldn't. At some stage, even the most avid breastfeeder will accept that it's starting to affect their child's career. <laughs> Getting a child onto solid food is a matter of experiment. A lot of very good advice books about kids and food have been produced by people with nannies. 
and by the parents' pressure group, Bored Celebrity Housewives Against Food Additives. <laughs> These books advise against packets and jars and tell you instead to simply puree some of what you're having. The trouble is that Pizza Hut don't puree. <laughs> Not unless the ad on the moped goes under a burst. In general, it's extremely reckless to puree some of what you're having and give it to a baby. Chicken tikka and half a bottle of Jameson's at two o'clock in the morning can sit very heavily on a tiny stomach. <laughs> Commercial baby foods are a mixture of good and bad. Don't be duped into thinking that the ones called things like winter vegetable julienne with braised breast of spring chicken mornay will be any less foul-tasting than the rest. Look at the labels and avoid the ones whose lists of ingredients read Water, dextrose, viscose, partially adulterated vegetable fat, chlorine, salt, liver-shaped pieces, lard extract, vegetable look-alikes, shit. When children are a bit older, you may like to experiment with foods that contain stabiliser, and this will stop them falling off their bikes. But do be careful with additives. I gave my niece a chemistry set one Christmas, and by Easter she was extracting the E-numbers from chewing gum and snorting them. High-tech food and high-tech children are a dangerous combination. If you give most seven-year-olds a pot noodle, a home computer and some string, they can rustle up a tactical nuclear weapon in two or three days. But the food industry is very scrupulous in ensuring that anything which might harm infants is safely exported to developing countries. <laughs> when baby is onto finger foods, there are many old favourite ruses for enticing them. Here are some ideas from the popular daytime TV chef and former actress whose name escapes me. Thank you, Jeremy. Fun shapes are a good idea. Try carving little pieces of cheese into the shape of ink pens or toilet brushes. Fill an icing bag with mashed avocado or swede and spell out the words keep out of the reach of children or warning contains hydrochloric acid on a sheet of greaseproof paper. If you have the time, decorate the child's mouth as if it were the cassette compartment of your video recorder and sit her in front of a mirror with a plate of sandwiches. <laughs> And you can buy Nanette's book, Cooking for Jane Asher, if your toddler sticks it in the shopping trolley when you're not looking. <laughs> now on to hygiene. In general, there is universal agreement about the importance of keeping your child and your home very clean. Where controversy arises is over the question of disposable versus terry nappies. It is hard to believe that in the 1990s, after all that human beings have learned during the millennia of our tenure on this, our earth, there are people who campaign for a return to cloth nappies. It is even harder to comprehend how a person can be so bored that they devote any more than a passing thought to using cloth nappies, let alone trying to get other people to do it. If there is a crisis over landfill sites in the United States and a depletion of forestry caused by paper milling, I can think of no better reason than that the Earth's space and resources are being devoted to dragging humankind out of the pit of barbarism that is Terry Nappies. <laughs> better that a thousand acres of trees be felled to provide pampers than that a single closely typed sheet of A4 be devoted to expounding the virtues of pinning large towels around the crotches of children so that they may use them as toilets. <laughs> yes, it is true you can save a lot of money by washing and reusing a nappy, but you could equally economise by not wiping your own bottom and simply chipping the sediment off once a month with a chisel. <laughs> Furthermore, Furthermore, the heat, energy and chemical pollutants that go into sterilising soiled nappies are no great boon to the environment. And to be frank, the environment isn't known for its consideration towards humans anyway. What a bitter irony that 90% of books expressing concern about the planet are written by people who live on the San Andreas Fault. <laughs> I think I make myself clear, and I feel much better for that. 
I shall now discuss what happens when you take off a baby's nappy. Listeners who don't want to know the result should turn their heads away. <laughs> now experts agree that children should not feel inhibited about or ashamed of their feces or that it's dirty or unpleasant. This is the opposite of the view which is taken about adults and their feces, but I'm sure there's a good reason for it. <laughs> As to teaching a toddler to use a potty, kids learn by example. It can be hard for dad to convince his tots that urine should go into a container when most of his goes over the bathroom floor. <laughs> However, a child adapts much better to passing stools into the potty since this enables her to take them out and use them as hair gel before you can stop her or indeed video her doing it. If you do stop her, it's important not to say anything negative, like dirty or bastard. <laughs> Try something like, OK, Harriet, there's a reason why we tend to feel that it's not valid to wear those on our heads as such. <laughs> if your child won't even get as far as going in the potty, line it with a piece of expensive carpet, and this will do the trick. <laughs> When she finally succeeds, your child will feel proud of herself, and you should be equally delighted and encouraging. It can be a nice idea to freeze this breakthrough and present it to her when she's about 17 and brings a boyfriend home for the first time. <laughs> now the question of exercise. Even babies and toddlers need to exercise. However, there is no need for them to start pumping iron, unless you're the sort of father who wants to raise boys who end up living on their own and reading Soldier of Fortune. <laughs> Children get most of their exercise during energetic play, as indeed do their fathers. You'll have seen men with one-year-olds at parties saying, Come on, Myron, show everyone how you can somersault off my shoulders and land on your head. <laughs> Lifting, throwing and endangering children demonstrates a man's patriarchy to others, and it's a way of showing how much the child can do, if forced. If nothing else, it teaches kids not to trust a grown-up's ability to catch. <laughs> very young babies benefit from gentle exercise, but don't expect too much from newborns because they're pretty useless, to be honest. The best exercise, whether you're six months or 60, is generally held to be swimming. Some parents are of the opinion that children have a natural ability to swim. My own father took it upon himself to introduce me to the older shot Lido before I was out of nappies. Unfortunately, the nappies filled with water and I sank. <laughs> But his intuition was not without foundation. After a few seconds underwater and once I'd freed myself from my cot, that mysterious animal instinct took over in me and I began to fly south for the winter. <laughs> but let's look at the all-important issue of child safety. Dog owners who are about to become parents need to make a decision about who is more important to them. People with dogs seem totally bemused when their crazed American mutant ninja terrier rips one of their children to pieces. Well, he's never done it before. She must have provoked him in some way. Children are sensibly terrified of dogs until dog owners lull them into a full sense of security by saying, It won't hurt you. To which a useful reply is, No, and I bet his shape makes an attractive pavement decoration and wholesome children's snack. <laughs> but we are a nation who keep children on leads and let dogs roam free. With me once again is veteran childcare expert and author of the bestseller Just Give Me Five Minutes Alone With Him, Geraldine Bradshaw, <laughs> to show us some of the latest in child safety products. That's right, Geoffrey. Jeremy. Isn't that a girl's name? No. It's a bit sissy, though, isn't it? Anyway, I've been looking at some toddler harnesses trying to find one that strikes right balance between safety and freedom for the child, and my gold star goes to this one. That's the Kids' Time Cozy Shackle. Enough to set mum's mind at rest without stopping your child from dreaming of movement. And if you hate to be the sort of parent that's always hauling your little one back to your side, well, don't worry, because the leg irons are quite painful and the slightest tug will have him doubled up on the floor in no time. All right. Well, what about beeper alarms? 
Well, I road tested one of these on my grandson, Timothy, and I have to say I was very disappointed. For the start, they don't fasten securely enough. I was expecting more of a surgical implant. <laughs> and when it went off, I expected a high-pitched whining, but it didn't even cry. There was no electric shock, no explosion, nothing. Uh, well, well, let's look at child car seats, shall we? Well, Jessica, I always say, there's no child seat like Granny's lap. Yeah, but what about safety? Sometimes a child's got to find out about windscreens the hard way. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Geraldine. So, so much for babies and toddlers. Let's move on. I've subtitled the next section of tonight's lecture, The Rest of Your Child's Life. When I was about to become a father, a very wise man gave me a piece of advice which I have found absolutely invaluable. You may not be so lucky. If there's no one giving you such pearls of wisdom, you'll just have to wing it. <laughs> Many years ago, I was sharing a joke with a comedian friend of mine. Material was hard to come by in those days, and there weren't enough jokes to go round. But then my friend started to tell me about being a father. Jeremy, he quipped, I tell you, become a father. You'll get so much new material out of the child. Every morning now, I sit my child down with a pen and paper, but so far her efforts have been absolute gibberish. <laughs> Nonetheless, if you're just embarking on the epic journey of fatherhood, there is much laughter ahead. Sometimes my little one has had me in absolute fits, which I never suffered from before. <laughs> there have also been some very amusing moments, like the time when a popular TV personality was doing the horoscopes on breakfast television, and our little monkey, who can have been no more than 11 months old, piped up, Astronomer! She meant, of course, astrologer. Kids. <laughs> but how does one be a father to a child? Much is talked nowadays about a child's need for a male role model, but usually by men who feel guilty about spending no time with their own kids. Tory MPs whose children are at boarding school are one minute castigating lesbian relationships for the lack of a male role model, and the next minute saying lesbians look like men. They can't have it both ways. Actually, quite a few Tory MPs have it both ways, whatever they say in public. <laughs> So, let's talk about bringing up kids. One of the most important areas is the area of talking and listening. As well as talking to a child, it's vital that you listen to what you're saying, otherwise your mind will wander and you'll find you're talking bollocks. <laughs> Think about what you're saying and why you're saying it and ask yourself these questions. One. What am I saying? Two. Why am I saying it? Three. What did you say? I wasn't listening. And four. Huh? Oh, what is it now? Can't you see I'm busy? <laughs> Sometimes when we think we're talking to children, we're not really saying anything to them. This is because they've left the room without our noticing. <laughs> By not only talking, but using eye contact and physical closeness, we can achieve greater awareness of when children have gone out. Then we can say dirty stuff without them hearing. <laughs> it is often said that one of the things that gets in the way of communication with children is the television. Now, Gordon, I believe you've got very strong views on this. Yes, Jeremy, there really is no excuse for a child to vegetate in front of violent and mindless cartoons on the telly. I mean, there are plenty of Disney videos a child can be sat in front of. <laughs> and there's also some very good nature programs. Instead of seeing space monsters tearing each other to pieces, your child can learn about the way actual wild animals tear each other to pieces. <laughs> and what looks like a soppy look-and-learn video about playful chimpanzees can be every bit of stomach-churning as the uncut version of Deliverance. <laughs> Sesame Street is also a godsend to fathers. It's well-made, funny and educational, although Big Bird is a bit of a twat. <laughs> you know what else is good, Jeremy? What? Pingu. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Tremendous. And you know what I love about it? What? It's about real penguins. Absolutely. <laughs> I also think that children's books have moved on since Gordon and I were children. When I was a boy, my reading consisted of books like War and Killing for Boys, A Hundred Favourite Wars, and Paddington Invades Vietnam. 
was ten before I realised Britain was no longer at war with Germany. I thought that the German language consisted of the expressions Arg Himmel and Mein Gott, Z prisoners are escaping. And that I Yi was Japanese for Oh, I've been shot. Even though my parents discouraged war toys, the very language they used was informed by a culture of militarism. If I came home with a bruised chin or a grazed knee, my father would say, been in the wars, which was a bit of an overstatement apart from anything else. But come home with one lung and a tank chuck across my face, dragging bits of barbed wire and writing poetry, an expression might have meant something. All this was compounded by the fact that I grew up near Aldershot, home of the British Army. At school fates, soldiers would give us displays and demonstrations of how to dismantle a railway carriage and transport it through a ticket barrier, how to, how to put an amusement arcade out of action without the use of explosives, and of course, unarmed combat, which means shooting people who are unarmed. But how much does militarism affect children? It is often argued that parents, particularly fathers, condition boys into aggression and girls into domesticity. Look at yourself as a man. Think about your own upbringing and ask yourself these questions. One. Am I aggressive? Two. Who's asking? Three. Me. Want to make something of it? And four. <laughs> you and whose army? Some believe that regardless of conditioning, boys are innately more aggressive than girls. Dr. Will Slinger of the Department of Men's Stuff at the University of Dixie <laughs> argues that male and female hormones produce different behaviour patterns. One cannot bend nature. However much liberal theorists play down the differences between the sexes, our bodies tell us different. It's a woman's estrogen that makes them buy pretty dresses, wear makeup and go to the toilet in groups of 20. <laughs> Likewise, a guy is a product of his testosterone. Whether he's putting up shelves, fixing stuff, or whooping someone's hide. He's doing what a man has to do with God on his side. No son of mine ever dodged the draft. I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskokie. God bless America. Because of attitudes like that, many fathers think that a boy mustn't be given a doll because it will turn him into a homosexual. Although if a man plays with a rubber replica of a woman, he's generally regarded to be a heterosexual. Albeit not a very happy one. <laughs> the toy doll will usually be given to the daughter, to whom the father will also speak more tenderly. She will be daddy's little princess, as if comparison with an educationally subnormal member of the ruling class is in some way a compliment. <laughs> some people think the reason for male homosexuality is that boys are treated too tenderly. The real reason is more likely to be that someone has to go to Barbara Streisand concerts. <laughs> There seems to be less concern about girls turning out to be lesbians. Most men, in fact, never give much thought to lesbianism unless it's on video. <laughs> but there is a real concern that children who are in any way different might get bullied. Traditionally, fathers have been divided between those who want a child to stand up for himself and those who think that whatever happens is the child's fault. Some kids were brought up always to fight back whether or not they had haemophilia. Others would go home bound, gagged and on fire to a father who'd say, what have I told you about fighting? <laughs> the child would be told to turn the other cheek in future, even though it was stapled to a blackboard. <laughs> if your child has been picked on, or indeed is picking on others, the best thing to do is to meet with the other dads, form a men's group and organise a rota, whereby all the kids get a turn at being picked on and bullying. <laughs> But one of the issues vexing our whole society in recent years is the question of whether some children are just bad. We might be tempted to believe this when we witness the behaviour of children whose parents don't believe in saying no. 
Sophie, I want you to look at why you think it is that something positive will be generated by you doing that. Says her father as Sophie stands on the dinner table urinating into the salad. <laughs> but is the child undisciplined or simply commenting on the nightmare of being brought up by vegans? <laughs> Part of us thinks... That child's been allowed to run riot for too long. Or even... That child needs a good smack. While part of us thinks... Go for it, Sophie! <laughs> On the other hand, we've all seen children sustaining head injuries from parents who seem to think it's a natural part of shopping. <laughs> then there are the middle-class parents who are quite happy for little Lucy to kill or maim other toddlers in the park because the insurance will cover it. <laughs> so what's the answer? I don't know. A favourite way of putting a child off smoking is to let them smoke the whole packet. We could apply this principle to all misbehaviour. Perhaps that's why Sophie has a free reign. And perhaps once the child has destroyed your whole house, she might get sick of it and help you build a new one. <laughs> or she may get a taste for it and be getting through 20 houses a day by the time she's 11. <laughs> the easiest thing to do in this context is to put everything out of the child's reach. You may decide to move to a third floor flat and rent the child one on the ground floor. <laughs> but how should we bring up children? What should we tell them? You've probably got certain values which you want your kids to have. You may be concerned about protecting the environment. In this case, you should keep kids away from the environment before they trash it like they did the video. <laughs> but your child will probably be questioning you about things before you've even thought of broaching the issue. When she says, Daddy, why don't you and Mummy like Mr Major? You can't very well say, Because he's a Tory bastard. <laughs> she won't know what a Tory is. Must try to relate ideas to things she knows about. So, if she asks you why you don't like Mr. Major, you might reply, Well, we don't all like everything. You don't like sprouts or liver, do you? Well, Mr. Major wants to make you eat them every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> as well as political ideas, you may have religious ideas. Religions require that children are brought up in them because they have difficulty in convincing adults. <laughs> this brings me onto the subject of education. Britain is facing up to the fact that Christianity has lost its hold on what is now a multi-faith community. Prince Charles has said that he wants to be defender of all faiths, in addition to his role as king, emperor of India and master of the universe. <laughs> but one of the last decisions of John Patton when he was education secretary was that children should be taught Christianity, but taught about other religions. This means that teachers have a difficult task of telling children that God's only son, Jesus, was born to Mary, who was a virgin, while at the same time keeping a straight face. <laughs> Patton is a staunch Christian and had to be replaced because even a government as reactionary as this one couldn't leave schools under the control of a man who looked physically sick every time he had to say the words sex education. <laughs> Here is an extract from a teacher's training manual devised by Patton before his dismissal where he sets out a model lesson in human reproduction. All right, pay attention, 1C. Today we're going to talk about reproduction. Here we see the human reproductive organs in cross-section. Here's the man's penis, or devil's water pistol, <laughs> to give it its scientific name. And here in the very pit of the loins, the sperms. Satan's tadpoles. <laughs> See how they writhe, waiting to fertilize the eggs which disport themselves lewdly and provocatively, like very Jezebels in the foul, dank cave of a harlot's lust. <laughs> Any questions at all? <laughs> but what should children learn at school and what should they learn at home? 
Fathers of child prodigies often educate their children entirely at home and never send them to school, worried that they might be held back by children who are happy and well-balanced. <laughs> On the other hand, you might decide to send children to boarding school if for some reason you don't like them. <laughs> Many parents today are very worried about their children's education, but thankfully we now have the Parents' Charter. Under the Conservatives, parents are much more closely involved with their children's education because they have to buy everything for the school. School fates used to be fun for the kids, a social occasion for parents, and hopefully raise a few quid. Now they're subject to the rigours of the marketplace, it's cheaper to go to Euro Disney. <laughs> so much for education. So far, we've covered all the problems you're likely to face as a father, apart from illness, drugs, divorce, disability, the inner torment of teenagers, the torment of bringing up teenagers, kids leaving home and being unemployed in a world with no clean air or water, where all the nice art deco cinemas have been knocked down and the Labour Party's useless, worrying about your kids for the rest of your life, and them despising you and not wanting to live with them when you're old. <laughs> but I'm afraid the clock has beaten us once again, so you'll just have to make the rest up as you go along. <laughs> Credits, please. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by and starred the father of Apricot's Wee Wee, Tinkle Tots Hardy, and also starred Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. The programme is a positive production for the BBC, produced by David Tyler, who is like a father to us, because he breaks wind all the time and blames it on the dog. <laughs>